this was uh, Orla's room. Her cot was over there, and the room was a pale yellow. And it's now been repainted to scream. Um, all her dolls and teddies were along this uh, shelf, and in in, her, in the wardrobe here. It was full of dresses and all the clothes that she got. And now it's full of um, folders and books. And the room has been turned into a study. It has a computer and a printer and a desk where her cot used to be. And do you mind coming into the room? No, don't mind at all. Um, before it was cleared out, it was very upsetting to come in because Felix used to continually come in and sit and play with her toys. So it took me six months before I could wash the bedclothes or begin to pack up some of her things. As well as that, for ages afterwards, the room smelled of um, baby powder and cream and different things that you associate with a baby because they were all in the press and even after it was cleared out the smell lingered and somebody sent me a big bunch of orchids when Orla died and the smell of orchids always reminds me of her because for some reason I associated with the smell of baby powder and cream and things like that And who helped you clean up the room? And I did it all myself um, I wanted to do it all myself. Um, Orla had a little frieze going along there, an ABC frieze, and it was in Irish. It was Ossel and Bead and Baud, Seed and Cot, and, you know, which she liked. And do you work up here? Yeah, I work at the computer and so does Dermot. No, there's no bad feeling in the room. It's a lovely room. I really like it. found out in November 94 I already knew but the doctor confirmed it for me and I was really pleased because um, I had a son who was two and I liked the idea of him having a companion somewhat near his own age. Um, at first I was quite ill, I had a lot of headaches and I was a bit sick but when I got over that um, the pregnancy was quite easy and I didn't have any problems at all. When I told my little son about the pregnancy, he um, he was delighted and he kept talking about um, our baby. When, when is our little baby going to be born? He thought it was mine and his in particular and didn't belong to anybody else. Um, well, I didn't know whether I was going to have a boy or a girl, but um, I was getting very impatient because eventually it ran to 15 days overdue. And then on the night of the 24th, um, I got, I had some pains and I was wondering, was I going into labour? We dropped Fiek up to his grandparents' house at half past 10 and then went into the hospital at a quarter to 11. And Orla was born that night, 10 past 12. It was an easy delivery and she was born very quickly. Um, I was absolutely delighted to have a girl 
because now I had a son and a daughter and I really cry, cried with joy when she was born. Um, and uh, I remember when we phoned Dermot's parents to say that we had a little girl, they couldn't believe she was born so quickly and they were delighted. Then everybody came in the next day and as Orla was the first daughter and first granddaughter, she was really showered with presents and dresses and toys and things like that. I, ju- I just, I was so pleased to have a daughter. Um, wh- what it reminds me of is when you're a little girl yourself, it brings you back to that. You suddenly begin to remember all the things that were special to you when you were a little girl. Maybe dresses that you liked, toys that you liked, you know, um I didn't have particular expectations for her other than to look forward to her growing up and to look forward to her walking, to going to school and to reaching all the milestones that you you expect your children to reach. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you. David's photographs in Maria? Yeah. Good daddy, come on, we'll have a look at them together, will we? There's David's photographs. Who's that? Um, Who is it? David. That's David, that's right, isn't it? Lovely. That's when he was born. Look at it there. Yeah. And look, he's all snuggled up nice, isn't he? And yeah. who's this here? Um, who's that there? Look. Mummy. Um, and? She's in the hospital. And who's she in hold? the hospital. Who's she holding there? That's David, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and who's that? Daddy. That's Daddy in beside her. That's right, isn't it? Ah, look. And there she is again. Isn't that nice? Yeah. I suppose the first photograph we have of him is there. Actually in the hospital. I don't know how many hours. Well, he'd be he'd be a day old nearly. He was born on the, David was born on the 16th of uh, December, 1990. It was actually the same day, I think. Something, I forget what happened to Cardinal, one of the Cardinals. I don't know whether he died or whether he was in Toronto. But uh, we had, uh, it, the picture of him here is actually, he's well wrapped up and he's in one of these Perspex cots that they have in the hospital. When we brought him on, we thought, well, that's it. We're out of the hospital. All our worries are over Okay, you might get a cold or something, but that would be it. That's all we tossed, you know. And did you think about the future? What did you think of? We we really it was very difficult to think of the future. In, in uh, it's very difficult to think of how you thought about the future now. You know, so many years ago, 
but I suppose we we saw him growing up. We were we were waiting for his language development when he died, you know. And you're sort of saying it'll be words soon, you know. And you're waiting for these words, Mama and Dada. And at that stage, you don't think beyond that, you know. You're actually waiting for the next stage of development to come, and uh, you know it it didn't actually come, you know. We got to making sounds, but that was it, you know. He was four months when he died, and. Uh, with the last, basically looking at him there, you know, he's, uh, uh, it's hard to know. I mean, he was so happy, you know, and he was in such good form all the time, you know. He was very, very, uh, what you call a pleasant baby in the sense that he was actually sleeping at night. You know, every night we'd put him down before we'd go to bed and he'd be, he'd wake up in the morning and you'd look into the cot and he'd be lying there with a smile on his face waiting for you to come along, you know. And uh, it was, uh, you know, it's just, a, it's just a big shock. Even, I know it's, what, it's nearly six years down the line now, but it's still such a big shock to actually feel that, it, you know. Something, it was like we had weeks upon weeks of this lovely, you know, putting him to bed, waking up in the morning, going in to see him smiling in the cot, playing with him, having fun, you know. Feeding him, he was easy to feed. He'd, he'd devour any bottle you'd give him, you know. And he was he was really a pleasant child, you know. And, like, we had this constantly be- beautiful life, really, you know. And then suddenly it's taken away from you. There's Orla's grave there on the left. It's made of lovely white granite stone. And Dermot designed the children of Lear, or clown Lear, for it which catches the transformation of the children into swans and that's just something he wanted to do to capture Orla's life and death. Um, the surname is down at the bottom, MacDonald, and her name in, is in lovely black lettering, Orla Deirdre and the date 24 to the 5th, 95 to 2nd to the 1st, 96. Um, these uh, yellow flowers were left out by her grandparents. They often leave... Um, pots of different coloured flowers out for her. Do you come out here every week? Um, generally we would come out on a Sunday. Occasionally we miss a Sunday for whatever reason, but as a rule we come out and just to make sure she always has flowers of some sort uh, on her grave. And who, who would go out? Um, myself, Dermot and Fiek would always go out together. Um, sometimes Fiek buys little flowers or teddies in in the shop and but they because of bad weather and that they just decay and that and then we throw those away when we get new ones and she always has her little doll she always has her her doll has lasted because it's in in the jar it has lasted since last march or april and when you come out here what what do you do um we just leave flowers we just stand for a few minutes um, very short time really I suppose we just think about her and then we go home Richard died in 1974 on the 28th of March. Richard was just eight months old when he died. 
normally we would get up, Michonne is a dairy farmer, so he gets up quite early. And he would go down uh, past the baby's room and always, he Richard at that stage would have been standing up in the cot, jumping up and down. And he used to say to him, now lie down there for another few minutes and your mother will be with you. But this particular morning when he was going out, he passed the room and there was no sounds. And he said, oh, Bigaris, your man is getting uh, sense. He's staying asleep. So I got up, I suppose, maybe about an hour or so later, half an hour later. And uh, when there was no sound from the baby's room with three other children under four, I was... you know, we're glad to have the uh, opportunity to bring them down, put them sitting at the breakfast table and prepare Richard's bottle or his breakfast. And um, just then the postman arrives and our postman comes at about 10 to 8 in the morning and he arrived with a parcel from Australia for Richard and Ian, our eldest boy, tore it open as all little three and a half year old boys or four year old boys would do and he ran upstairs to give Richard his present. And suddenly I could hear this shouting Mummy, mummy, come quick, 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 the baby's not breathing. And I put all of the previous, you know, half hour's uh, situation and I said, oh my God. And when I went up, Richard was in his cot, cold, blue and stiff. I was reading a book on cottists recently and some people thought it was the thing to do to actually destroy everything that the baby owned, including toys, clothes, even down to photographs, as if trying to erase the whole bi- the whole memory of the baby or the whole proof that the baby existed. And as you were saying, you love looking at photographs. I absolutely love looking at her photographs. I love looking at her dress and her pretty dresses and her baby grows and her silly hats and her funny toys and especially the ones of her making faces or smiling. And do you think even if it was um, 10, 20 years ago, when those attitudes might have prevailed more, that yeah. if everything had been burnt and destroyed, would, would it have made things easier for you? I think it would make things harder. Yeah. I think um, that it's like when you have something that used to belong to somebody, in a sense you have a little part of them because they've touched it, they've worn it. Um, it was something that made them happy and you can conjure them up in it. That's what you have left of them. So this is the this photo is, album? Yes, this is Orla, um, newborn, and this is myself and Dermot and Fieck on day one at the hospital. Um, this is me sitting up at the day after Orla was born in my pink and white nightdress, looking reasonably happy considering I was through childbirth. Um, Fieck is looking very startled at the camera, probably wondering why everyone is making such a fuss, even though he knows why. And um, Dermot has just has his arm round Orla. She's wearing a lemon cardigan and she's looking up towards my face. And there's Fiat. He looks very... I can see what you mean by big brother. Yeah. He's there holding her. <laughs> he's he's um, was very protective of her and he really um, reveled... In, what, what's the word? <laughs> yeah, reveled. <laughs> reveled in his status as her big brother, you know. He's very proud, clutching her there. Yeah, he suddenly became very important. You know, he was no longer the baby. Um, This is another favourite photograph because Orla is wearing um, little pink dungarees and her Paddington bear hat again and blowing raspberries and peeping out under her hat, (laughs) which she really liked doing. 
And there's more. And I can, her big grin. Yeah. Yeah. And she was always um, sticking out her lower lip as well. As you can see there. Um, it was absolutely beautiful summer. Um, I used to bring Orla out in her pram every single day. She usually just wore um, a bonnet and a little dress. She had one particular hat, a little blue Paddington bear hat and a little blue dress to match and she'd just have her bare feet because it was just so warm and we used to go out walking every single day. Um, I wasn't working during that summer so myself and Fiek and Orla used to go out. I had a little seat on top of the pram for when Fiek used to get tired. He was three that August and I remember having a big party in the house for him and she was there just sitting there sucking her soother, not really bothered with any of it. Um, you could see that Orla, she was quite laid back, but when she decided she wanted something, she was totally determined. And even from when she was tiny, you could see the determination to keep up her head by herself. You know, it didn't flop all over the place. And um, she was a bit cheeky as well. She loved blowing raspberries at people and looking for people's attention and flirting almost to get their attention and always succeeding in getting it. Um, she was very good-humoured and didn't cry a lot. Um, she made loads of noise and um, Fiek loved teasing her. He was a bit jealous of her, but he used to be mad about her as well. Look. Oh, yeah, what's that? It's it's like a birthday cake. It's called a christening cake, isn't it? Yeah, it's lovely, and it's got it's got welcome, baby David written on it, and there he is beside it. And someone's going to cut it, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Is he happy? Yeah. Yeah. Oh look, this photograph. He's asleep. Yeah. He's very tired. Oh look. Look at this cheeky monkey here. Look. He's laughing, is he? Yeah. He's laughing. Oh, what's he doing there? What's he doing in that photograph? Uh, oh, what's that? A tongue. He's sticking out his tongue, isn't he? Yeah. Oh, he's having a great time. My wife had gone back to work for a while and we would bring David down to a neighbour uh, to, to mind him during the day. And uh, we, I set off for work a little bit earlier than her and she brought David down and uh, she went off to work and everything was grand. And I was working away. I, I work closer to home than she does and uh, I was just coming up to break time at work and uh, one, one of the chaps that works with me said, there's somebody here to see you. And um, I thought it was somebody selling something or whatever and I was... I was uh, he asked me to come into a room on, on my own, and when I went in, uh, I still didn't know what he was there for, and I just sort of said, well, you know, what what do you want? And he says, I'm I'm the local doctor. And he says, I've come to tell you that your son is dead. And uh, then that just shattered my whole life from there. I didn't know what to do. The next stage then was probably the most difficult stage and that I had to go through, which was... Actually, what? a couple of my friends got together and they, they they got my car and they took me in my car over to see my wife. And 
even to this day, the most poignant memory of of the whole episode is actually travelling in the car along a certain road. Whenever I travel that road, it brings it back to me. Travelling in the back of a car in pouring rain. It was a dismal day. And I'm trying to gather myself together, thinking what had happened. And more importantly, trying to figure out what am I going to say to my wife? How is she going to handle this? I'm going to walk in the door and actually tell her that her son is dead. And what's going to actually happen from there, you know? I think for any mother, any father, uh, the death of a child never leaves their memory. Time helps you to cope, but you never forget. Lots of people haven't had the opportunity to be able to express how they feel because of the death of their child. And you know, in Ireland long ago, cut deaths were regarded as maybe the babies had smothered. And the mothers often were told never to speak about that child again, particularly by their own mothers or by perhaps if they lived in with mother-in-laws or father-in-laws, they were told to never mention that child's name again because sometimes it was regarded as a slight on the family, as if the child had been murdered. Those attitudes were certainly around in the 70s because a lot of people who said to me, ah, well, we know how your baby died. And I said, well, do you know? Because I don't know how my baby died. So they were people who were coming from the old traditional belief that mothers smothered or they lay on their babies or that for some unknown reason they were negligent. Now, there was a lot of that kind of uh, thought going around that was because we didn't take necessary care. In fact, up to recently, somebody said, well, you know, really those babies were just neglected babies and this was somebody who to me was an informed person but I know I did all that I could for Richard all of those 23 years ago all that I possibly could have done no different from my other three children that had been born previous to that Richard was our fourth child I thought I was the religious one in the family and I frequently would have said to Sean you never say a prayer and he says he would often say at night to me I do I say Jesus I'm an awful bastard And that's humility, I suppose. But when it came to the actual coping with uh, Richard's death, Sean was the one with the strength, the inner strength. I just lost all any little bit I had. But um, he was the one with the strength. He was the one with the support. I suppose he was the one with the deeper faith. He didn't need to crawl thump. He had it. He had, suppose, he was the one that organised the uh, mechanical things, I suppose, around at that time, such as thinking about funerals and identifications and dealing with the police, as you have to when you have a sudden unexplained death. Uh, I wasn't involved in that end, so I presume he had to pull himself together a lot more than I did. But thankfully, we were able to talk together about it. And as we still do all of 23 years later, and I have a picture of Richard in our bedroom still. So we say goodnight to him every so often. And um, in fact, the children for years included, uh, you know, God bless mommy, daddy, Richard and all the usual. But and Richard was very much part of the family for years. Um, this picture was bought from Orla's last children's allowance, which I collected after she died. And it's called Tree of Absurdities. It's by Sylvia Edwards. And that's what I felt life was like at the time, even though this picture is very celebratory of life at the same time. It's orange and blue and purple, and it has uh, fish and heads of people and animals all on the branches of a growing tree. And there's some yellow in the background as well. Still called the tree of absurdities, though? Yes. (laughs) 
Um, well, I mean, life is absurd when you think of it, and especially in terms of a baby dying, life seems particularly absurd. This is Orla's little rocking horse, um, which my sister's boyfriend Shane gave her when she was really tiny. He brought it home from America. And it has a little pink ribbon. Um, I, I remember the night before clearly because um, Orla stayed up later than normal. She had no sign of going to bed. And um, I remember lying down on the couch and I had... Orla in my arms, I was holding her under her armpits and so that her face was facing mine and I was lowering her down and kissing the top of her head and we often did that and she'd just collapse into giggles every time I kissed the top of her head and I'd have to keep doing it and then she'd keep hitting me with her little pink soother and I got tired of that after a while so I asked Dermot to take her and I decided to give her an extra bottle, I decided Perhaps she was hungry and that's why she wasn't going to go to bed. So he took her on his knee and he was at the computer screen and she was looking at all the colours there and I made her an extra big bottle and she drank all of that and then I put her down to bed about half past ten. Orla had her own bedroom. It was the box room upstairs. Her cot was in there. Um, when I went in the next morning... Um, she was under the covers. When I pulled the covers back, she was white and blue. I picked her up and I knew immediately she wasn't breathing and I screamed and Dermot came running out of the bathroom and he tried to massage her heart. He tried to blow in her mouth. I rang the ambulance and then we decided we'd just rush her to Beaumont instead and we just picked up Fiek into the car, rushed to Beaumont. Dermot ran into casualty with her and we were taken into another room it was about an hour after we brought her to the hospital that they came and told us she had died. But when we look back on it now, we know that when I found her, she was dead. Um, I remember even the nurses coming in to us and crying. And my own sister works as a nurse in Beaumont Hospital, but she wasn't on duty at the time, but they managed to contact her. So she came rushing to the hospital. And then afterwards... All the relations came to the hospital. The hospital phoned them. Then we were told to go to um, Temple Street Hospital because they have a little mortuary room there. So she was brought to Temple Street. We were told that even though she'd have to have a post-mortem, the likelihood was that she had suffered a cot death because she was apparently healthy. Um... Dermot lost his daughter, whom he was really attached to. Um, Fiek lost his little sister. And he also lost his status as a big brother. His role in the house was suddenly gone or reversed. And that is very difficult.
was probably very, I felt very cold. Uh, I did appear calm, I reckon. But it's, it's, it's a, a knee-jerk reaction, as it were. Uh, it's something that happens in all societies, probably just as much as in our own society here, is that as, as a man, you're expected to be the support for everything. And even during that day, people were speaking to you as if you were the support immediately. So you sort of, you role played into that role immediately. You know, people were saying to you, you know, you know, you have to take care of this and take care of that. And you're saying to yourself, yes, I have to take care of this and that. And before you know it, you're into a supporting role. And uh, it takes time then because that everybody believes that you're in that supporting role all the time, you know. And for, say, for months afterwards, people would come up to me at work and they would ask me how my wife was. And they would insist on asking me how my wife was. Now, in probably most cases, they were actually trying to find out how I was as well. But it it was the tradition to ask how your wife was. And it would get to a hideous stage where you'd sort of say to yourself, why don't they ask me how I am? So we see you later, will we? Yeah. Okay, thank you for showing me the photos. Say see you later. See you later. Bye. 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 Oh, I see you, Amor. Bye. There was no turning point. Every day, if you think once, you certainly, in the earlier months afterwards, Richard was constantly in your mind. The whole nightmare of the um, experience was in your mind. As you go on through and the years passed, certainly Richard wouldn't come into your mind as frequently, but he frequently would certainly come into our minds um, for various reasons. And that pain in your tummy comes back as it was the day it happened. Uh, Not as frequently as it did in the early days, but it is the same pain of uh, loss of a baby. We had to take the coffin in the car to the cemetery. It was my parents-in-law, car, Dermot and myself and Felix sat in the back with the coffin across our knees. I found it the longest journey I ever had to make, even though in reality it was from Temple Street to Dardistown, which is just a couple of miles. I wanted to jump out of the car and run away into the traffic because it was a nightmare. I felt as if my chest was tightening and I couldn't breathe and I was stuck in a car with a coffin containing my baby daughter on my knee. When we got to the cemetery, I found that I was inclined to keel over. I began to lose my balance a bit. Um, I kept repeating her name. I couldn't believe that Orla was in that box, in that ground. It was like burying part of myself. And it was very hard to turn around and walk away from that hole in the ground knowing your daughter was there. That's the hardest thing I ever had to do. This one of her favourite musical toys... Thank you.
Were these all presents she got when she was born and at Christmas? Well, some, some she got at Christmas and some she got when she was born and some she got in between. She was always getting presents. For instance, she got this uh, um, Minnie Mouse from my sister Alice. She got a Minnie Mouse for Orla and Mickey Mouse for Fake from America when she went to Hawaii. She brought them back. That was during the year. Now, this little car... She actually got in this box and um, it, um, it's a dog car. It has little ears like a dog and wheels like a car and a nose that could be the front light but is also a nose and it makes this sort of a noise. And Fiat really enjoyed letting her touch it and then pulling it away just before she could touch it. <laughs> And teasing her. This is her bottle. That, that was actually the last bottle I filled the night before for her. And she drank full eight ounces. And I couldn't empty it for ages afterwards. And do you, people who are listening, if they think, do you feel this This is good to keep these, these um, things, like her last well, bottle? Is there? I, I will keep them until I actually feel that I, w- I shouldn't keep them. You know, it depends on my own feeling. I don't go along with what anyone thinks I should do. Just whatever I feel, that's what I will do. Um, We found um, a lot of people said, um, you have a little angel in heaven. That was the first reaction. It got to the stage that we said that the next person who says, you have a little angel in heaven, we were going to thump them. As it turned out, it was a priest who came to the door and he said... He is a little angel in heaven. He didn't even get the sex right. And that, in a sense, is typical of people's attitude when it's a baby because they think of the baby as an it rather than a person. I mean, nobody would come to the door if your mother had died and said, I'm very sorry he died or your father died. They wouldn't mix them up. Neither would they say he or she is a big angel in heaven. Because if they did, you think they were out of their tree. Um, some people try and console you by saying you've a special baby or aren't you lucky that she wasn't 18? Um, aren't you lucky she'll suffer no pain in the world now? When your baby dies, you feel the mo- like the most unluckiest person alive. There, it's one in a thousand births, I think, that die in a cot death. So you have to be fairly unlucky to be that one. So the people that say aren't too lucky, they should perhaps think again. Um, Often if I speak about Orla in terms of talking about babies in general, um, for instance, she was a good feeder, um, Fiek wasn't, or something of that nature, it, it seems that people think it's impolite or you're speaking completely out of turn I mean, I can speak about my father who died four years ago and say he used to do this and he used to do that and everybody joins in and thinks that's fine. But if you say about your little baby, she used to do such and such, um, it's considered improper in some way. 
the death of a child in those days was regarded as, I presume, just something that happens and wasn't to be acted on or supported. We rang uh, the, our parish priest that morning and his housekeeper answered the phone and when we said that we wanted the priest because the baby had died, her reply was, oh, what do you want a priest for? It's only a child. And that hurt me quite a bit. I must say um, it wasn't the priest that said it, it was the housekeeper who took it on, but that would have been the attitude. Of course, I think we're better at talking about things now. We're able to talk openly. Certainly cut death is on, is everybody's, you know, people know about it. But people only know about it uh, as long as there's publicity. But if there's no publicity, they don't know about it. And um, I think people are better at openly discussing things nowadays. A lot of, Ireland particularly, had a lot of taboos that you didn't talk about. And... um, Certainly, if there was anybody in those days who was an unmarried mother or anything, you never spoke about that. That's certainly all more open, openly spoken about now. And I do think there's more support. We have some more support agencies. We have more voluntary agencies here now. And I think that it's, it's not easier to cope with. I just think perhaps there are people there to help you if needed. Now, having said that, when you lose a baby, no matter how many people are there, that loss is still the same whether it's 20 years ago, 50 years ago, or last week. I'm beginning to imagine David in terms of Emer. When I see her at certain stages, I say, this is a stage that David never got. Now he, now he's at that stage. Some, uh, my wife now tends to, um, tends to imagine him as being the age he, he is now, as such, in terms of he would be at school and he would be doing X, Y, and Z. But I, I find it difficult to visualise that myself. Uh, but every time I see Emer doing something, I think, well, you know, it would be nice. Another time we both think it would be lovely now if our big brother was here to actually, you know, to do things, to mind her while we're just doing something elsewhere in the house or whatever. You know, but uh, they're, they're the sort of things we, we often think about. I often wondered how tall he would be. All our children are extremely tall. They're all over six foot. And I often wondered, because Richard did look a bit different to the rest of them, I did not have a a portrait photograph of Richard, which I had had of my three older ones. And I had had them at his age too. I don't know why. There must have been some reason why I didn't have a photograph. But uh, I often wonder, would he have been any different? Because he did look a bit different. But to me, he's the baby that I have the photograph in my bedroom still of. Um, Fiat never talks about Orla in the past. He always talks about her as if she's invisible or in another room or she's just somewhere else. He always counts her in all the time. Even when he has a bedtime story, if we're reading Hansel and Gretel, he says, pretend I'm Hansel and Orla's Gretel. And in the story, Hansel always takes care of Gretel. Um, all sorts of theories are put forward. Um, Some people say the child just stops breathing and some people say that the whole system, for some reason, shuts down. But um, as a parent, these things are very difficult to accept, especially when you're not given any symptoms or warning signs. You don't know what you should look out for because nobody knows what you should look out for. We would have thought that Orla was in the safest, best possible place to be, which was in her own cot, in her own home, being looked after by both her parents. And yet you begin to realise 
how little power you have over your children's lives or indeed your own. Um, Orla grows up in my mind. I imagine her tottering beside me in a little red coat and hat and gloves and a little black pair of patent shoes skipping along with me, going to the shops. Um, She will continue to grow, I think, in my mind. Because I will always think, what would she have been like? Now she's now she'll be too soon. What would she be like when she's three? When she would start school, what would she look like? Um, I think she will continue to grow up. When it was Orla's birthday uh, on the 24th of May and she would have been one, um, her grandparents brought up this uh, cherry blossom tree to plant in the front to mark her birthday and this is her little garden and Fia planted some some of the sunflowers here they're not the really tall ones they're the smaller ones and uh, that's a little pink flower I don't know the name of it and a couple of shrubs as well. and it's, mar- it's marked off by a little wooden fence and some stones and, I mean, another 20 years and that's going to be a big springtime, a big pink blossom well, cherry this, tree. Well, this is a, it's a dwarf cherry tree, so it won't grow too tall, but it will have all its pink blossoms in the summer, which will remind me of her. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.